fact, um, my grandfather uh, shot himself while we were living with him. Uh, and it was a family secret for many, many years. Welcome to the Depression Files, where we talk about everything related to mental health. From depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. We educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. All right, my guest today is the author of Finally Out, Letting Go of Living Straight. He is a board-certified psychiatrist with over 40 years of experience. He is a Distinguished Life Fellow of American Psychiatric Association, and he has been named an exemplary psychiatrist by the National Alliance of Mental Illness, NAMI. I want to welcome Dr. Lauren A. Olson to The Depression Files. Thank you, Al, for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, I'm excited that you're here, and I'm really looking forward to uh, to the interview. So uh, I know you... Uh, when was your book published? Uh, it's actually come out in uh, two editions. The first one was a few years ago, and then the uh, current edition came out in April of last year. So it's been out for a few months now. Okay, fantastic. And um, can you tell me a bit about... Uh, just a bit more about yourself, a little bit of uh, what it was like growing up, where you grew up, any kind of uh, personal info you'd like to share. Okay, well, that filled a book. I don't know how much time we have. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I grew up in a small town in Nebraska, uh, a town of a thousand people, uh, and everybody uh, kind of looked alike and thought alike and believed the same things. And then I uh, went to the University of Nebraska for my undergraduate in medical school. And from there, I entered the, the Navy uh, and was a flight surgeon in the Navy for four years. And that took me to Maine, where I ended up uh, uh, being stationed. And I liked Maine and decided to stay there to do my training at Maine Medical Center in, in, in uh, Portland, Maine. And uh, then I practiced there for a few years, uh, and my wife and I uh, decided to come back uh, to the Midwest where our families were. And uh, I've been living in Iowa since 1980. You were practicing medicine in the Navy. Was that psychiatry at the time? No, I didn't make my decision to go into psychiatry until uh, I was about to get out of the Navy. And uh, Al, I had uh, always expected that I would go into family practice because that was kind of the only model of, of practice that I knew coming up uh, in a small town uh, in um, Nebraska. And uh, the other thing about it was that, you know, in a small town like that, uh, when people this would have been in the 1950s, uh, when people saw psychiatrists, they kind of disappeared from the community. They went away to a state hospital or something and often didn't come back for a long time. And so there was a whole lot of mystique around uh, just what psychiatrists did. Uh, when I entered medical school, though, I found that my uh, I was really drawn to reading about uh, psychiatry. And uh, I... I was kind of headed in that direction, but still resisted the urge uh, to uh, not um, uh, go into family practice until I visited a small town where a friend of mine was practicing, and he had to go in and do a, a cesarean section to deliver a baby, and I thought, I can't be out here uh, in the middle of Nebraska doing something like this. It's beyond my skill level. And so I knew that I was going to have to have more training in something, and I thought, why not psychiatry? That's where my heart is. And, uh, you know, I, the best thing about it is that I'm, I'm almost 75 now and I still practice some. And I, I feel so blessed to have had a career that I have never stopped loving. You know, I, I uh, liked it from the start uh, and I've continued to like it all these years. Yeah, you know, I know you mentioned uh, following your heart into psychiatry. What was the original draw? Well, uh, I think 
you know, it's kind of hard to put it into words. I, I always tell people that uh, psychiatry isn't a choice, it's a calling. And I think in many ways uh, you, um, well, for one thing, I think you can really identify with what uh, psychiatric complaints and problems are you know, you can can feel that emotional pain and for us who do this work i think uh that we know that pain is kind of the worst kind of pain that people go through uh and even though it's not visible and you can't um poke somebody and find out where it hurts and you can't uh, do a CAT scan and find out the source of it. Once you really are uh, able to identify with that pain and you feel that you have some uh, ability to impact that, it's a very rewarding uh, career to be in. Uh, patients have often told me, you know, I've had kidney stones, I've had a difficult childbirth, I've had uh, cancer, but this pain is worse than anything I've been through. Uh, and I think that most people who really had a serious depression would understand that very well. Yeah, I think uh, I often say that I, I don't think anybody who hasn't been through a major depression can really understand what it's like. And it's so difficult to explain to somebody who hasn't, just like I will never understand the pain and struggle of giving birth. Um, I think it's something that once you've been through it, uh, that's that's the time you can really understand it. Yeah, I, I actually had a supervisor in my training, uh, and he said that uh, he didn't think you could be uh, good at being a psychiatrist unless you'd had some of your own personal pain, so you experienced some of that uh, yourself and then could accurately empathize with what the patient was experiencing. And I, I believe that's true. Uh, you know, they always say that all psychiatrists are crazy. And uh, to some extent, I suppose that's true in the sense that, you know, we we have uh, experienced that kind of pain and we've been through uh, enough to really identify with what's going on and know how bad it hurts. Well, I really um, appreciate and give you kudos for talking about your own challenges and struggles because I think some in the business of mental health aren't willing or aren't or don't feel able to share those stories. I've had uh, a history in my family of depressive disorders, and uh, in fact, um, my grandfather uh, shot himself while we were living with him uh, and it was a family secret for many many years I in fact didn't even know about it until I was in medical school Wow um, how old were you at the time well I would have been about 23 I suppose okay. and uh, I was when it happened I was uh, six I think I was I think I was in kindergarten or first grade right. uh, and my father had died when I was very young and we moved in with my grandfather and uh, uh, it became a, a family secret, I think partly because my mother had been the one to find him and, and I think it was just too traumatizing for her to uh, talk about it. Um, but there have been other people in my family as well who've uh, had um, significant depressive disorders and uh, so uh, I understand it from that perspective too and how you know, depression is not just the person who experiences it, but it has a contagious quality to the entire family. Oh, it definitely impacts the entire family. Um, after my uh, bout and my wife pretty much keeping our family together for four to six months, I really strongly encouraged her to get some therapy because I knew she was going to be dealing with just some, even some PTSD from comments I made to her and such. And just from all of the overwhelmingness of taking care of the family and pretty much doing everything while I was down and out. Um, how did your father pass away when you were at such a young age? Um, we were living on a farm and it was in a farm accident. Uh, he was uh, killed by a team of runaway horses when I was three. Wow. Uh, and uh, so it was, you know, shortly after that, that we moved in with my grandfather. And my grandfather was a German immigrant and had gone back to Germany after the war. And uh, as I understand it, uh, he had not believed that 
the Germans could have done what they did, and then he went back and and saw, in fact, the reality of all that. And he had just lost his wife not long before that, and I think he was just overwhelmed by life at that point, and he came back and and uh, shot himself in our basement. Um, and uh, so uh, my sisters. Uh, uh, one of them didn't know about it until she was like 13 or 15 and another one learned about it that day when she went to school but my mother kind of got us rushed us off to school and and uh, called the, the police I suppose and and uh, so it was very difficult with my mother having you know found my father and then found my grandfather too you know I I uh, hold no uh, hard feelings for her not being able to talk to us about it. Uh, and I just kind of accidentally discovered, my brother told me, with thinking that I already knew about it, I uh, was <clears throat> walking home from uh, his job with him one day, and we went by uh, a home where a woman had lived when I was growing up, and I said, well, whatever happened to Mrs. So-and-so? And, and he said, well, she hung herself. And I said, oh, I don't understand how that could possibly happen and he said well it's, it was sort of like grandpa and I said what you know uh, why didn't anybody ever tell me and he's, his response is well we I guess we thought we you already knew you know um, but uh, you know the, uh, that I think uh, probably was underlying my decision in psychiatry without even knowing about it you know I still believe in unconscious mechanisms that draw us into these things but uh, you know uh, and of course my own experience with having grown up without a father and and the impact of you know what does it mean to not have a father in the house and and uh, uh, I think uh, that created my own curiosity about how that impacted and then throw in a mix of uh, questions about my sexuality and uh, so there was a lot of sort of self-reflection in the process of uh, um, my decision I think right I can uh, completely understand you know the logic behind your mom not wanting to talk about um, your grandfather's death and such how did you feel knowing that your siblings had known and you didn't know did that impact you well, not really, because I think they just didn't know that I was so young that I didn't uh, catch all of, uh, what was going on, and uh, we didn't talk about it openly. And so I, I didn't have any strong feelings about it, because I think, uh, you know, how do you bring up something like that uh, and talk about it and, and tell somebody? Uh, it, we just, it just was a family secret even in the extended family nobody really talked about it very much because it was just too painful i think right uh i uh, actually at a family reunion uh a few years ago uh spoke uh at the end of the family reunion uh and i said you know we have two secrets in the family that i think we need to talk about openly my mother was gone then and i felt comfortable doing that uh, I said, you know, one of them is that I'm gay, and the other is that we have uh, a problem with depression in our family that we're, we don't talk about. Uh, and uh, there was some discomfort uh, and, frankly, some anger with me for having brought that up. Uh, but I don't regret having done it. I think, you know, it was uh, uh, something that the family needs to be able to talk more about, sort of. Uh, as you're trying to do here with your podcast, you get, you get people discussing this and treating it as just another illness that needs to be treated. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, you are a man of incredible courage, I think, to you know stand up in front of everybody and say that. Well, I, uh, I appreciate you saying that. I, I don't see uh, uh, myself as a hero in any way. I just feel that there are some things that... Uh, are so important that we uh, uh, talk about it in an open way and and uh, uh, it, it's so dangerous that we don't you know and mm -hmm. and unfortunate that uh, somehow it it has to be a secret uh, in in my childhood I'm sure that there was an element of shame in the family for the idea that somebody in the family had killed themselves as well. Uh, um, I didn't experience any um, public humiliation or anything like that, but you know, in a small town, everybody would have known, uh, <laughs> except me, I guess. You know, um, 
But I guess you know, to make it a little bit lighter note, you know, uh, I've seen people walk that close to death a lot of times in uh, the work that I do, and to be able to sort of bring them back from that edge uh, uh, is very satisfying for me. Uh, and uh, of course, um, uh, they experience. Uh, a lot of relief and loyalty when that happens too. So it's very, very uh, satisfying work. Yeah, incredibly rewarding. It sounds like. Yeah. Um, so, how would you uh, describe your psychiatry um, practice? Is it, uh, you know, in my mind, I oftentimes think of psychologist as the one doing the talk therapy and the psychiatrist giving the meds. And I do know that sometimes there's crossover in psychiatrists who do both. Um, what's your practice? Well, uh, fortunately, Al, I trained in an era when uh, psychiatrists also talked to their patients, right, you know. Right. <laughs> Uh, and so uh, I uh, learned how to do that, and uh, I still continue to do that. And of course, you know, I, I uh, perhaps not the most efficient provider in terms of getting patients through my office, but I, you know, the joy that I talked about in psychiatry wouldn't be there if all I did was walk into an office and write a prescription and leave again. Uh, my my framework for thinking about things is uh, Engel's uh, biopsychosocial model that we have to integrate the, the body and the uh, uh, psychological development as well as the current social circumstances. That all needs to come together in the way that we treat patients. And for me, just being a prescriber uh, addresses only one part of that. And I think a lot of people uh, are dissatisfied with the care they get because they may have a psychologist and psychiatrist that don't talk to each other and there's not that integration. And, mm. you know, our bodies and minds are not separate. They shouldn't be treated entirely separately either. So I, one of my um, favorite ways of practicing is kind of in a team setting where the, the therapist and the uh, uh uh, psychiatrists and other uh, kinds of uh, counselors are all under the same roof, so you can have that kind of hallway uh, uh, kind of consultation with each other. And, and I uh, wouldn't like to practice just in a solo office somewhere. My practice in general has been uh, just uh, general adult psychiatry. Uh, when I was <clears throat> first in practice in Des Moines, uh, which would have been in 1986, I came down here as a medical director of an inpatient psychiatric unit. Uh, and uh, I, I like dealing with the very serious kinds of uh, mental illness. And uh, I, I did that for most of the, my younger years. Uh, as things evolved over time, you know, psychiatry and the treatment for mental health has changed so much. Uh, and the, it became less and less satisfying because uh, managed care cut into the hospital stays, so we were sending people out uh, as soon as they uh, uh, had any kind of uh, claim not to be suicidal. And, you know, I feel in the work that I've done that we really... You know, we can get people in the hospital, we can stabilize them, and then we really drop the ball. You know, they, people leave the hospital and we say, come see me in a month and here's your prescription. But, you know, that time between the time a person leaves the hospital until they're really stable is a critical time. And there aren't resources that, that address that very well. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I really appreciate your thoughts on kind of the collaboration of care amongst providers. And I've heard of different um, locations. Um, and one that comes to mind was in England, where they are trying to do a lot more collaboration with the family doctor, the, the psychiatrist, the psychologist, and everybody work as a team to wrap around the, the patient. And it just makes so much more sense. Like you said, dealing with it in isolation and then they don't know, the prescriber doesn't know what the therapist has been doing, and it just seems so disjointed. And then your point to walking out the door after being stable at the hospital is not enough to say, come back in a month. You, I, I think you hit the nail on the head with that. And I think I'm lucky enough to be here in the Twin Cities where it's a big city, 
And we do have a variety of options like step-down programs. So if you're in a part, I was in a partial hospitalization program for three weeks. And after that, I could have jumped into some type of half-day program or three-day-a-week program. Um, I chose not to because I felt the, maybe part of it was shame, but also the the need to get back to work and some of the guilt, oh, sure. guilt of not being at work and and the shame of what do I tell people when I leave half days now and just a lot of stress and really a, a step down program probably would have been better. I remember um, meeting with my psychologist the first time after being in the partial hospitalization program and the therapist said, you know, know that you're not 100% yet. You know, you go into a deep, dark major depressive disorder and you, you could be looking at a full year before you're like fully recovered. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And it's, you know, it's very much, uh, uh, or at least it can be in many cases, a, a real roller coaster. You, you know, you have a good day and you think, wow, I'm finally out of this. And then suddenly something will happen the next day and the mood will change and then the bottom falls out again and, and that despair can so easily return and you begin to think, this is never going to end. I, I'm always going to be like this. And, uh, you know, that uh, sense of hopelessness that can set in uh, during that time is probably the most dangerous symptom, I think, when oh, I absolutely. with patients, you know, when, when all hope is gone, you know, where do you turn? And I've had patients who've come back to me uh, years after having talked with them, and they say, you know, I, uh, you probably don't remember it, but when you told me that uh, you don't know how this is going to end, but you do have hope that it will end. I remember when you said that to me. And uh, so I think a lot of what our job is as providers is to say that we don't always have all the answers and the answers don't come as quickly as we want. But we have to be able to communicate a message of hope yes. to our patients. Uh, and uh, and to the families, of course, too. I mean, I'm sure there were times when your your wife also felt like it was never going to end, and she was going to be stuck in that situation forever. Uh, but uh, people need to believe in recovery. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, a common uh, concern I hear about medication sometimes is that patients start feeling so good and so much better that they get off of their meds too soon, and then they end up back into a depression. And I'm wondering if you have kind of general guidelines or if you just, if it's completely patient by patient about how long people stay on medication. Sometimes I've heard things, guidelines, like if it's you, if you've had a second major depressive bout, you're going to be on for five years. If you've had three major depressive bouts, it's lifetime. So do, uh, do you believe in those types of guidelines? And if so, what guidelines do you go by? Well, I... I don't have any fixed rules. You know, I can tell you what I tell patients, and that is, you know, if you have, uh, if this is your first episode, we may be able to talk about uh, stopping the medicines in six months to a year after your, uh, 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 to see how it goes. And, uh, but if it's your second bout, or, and you have a family history of it, then I think we have to be looking at this as maintenance medication for for the long haul, and um, but you know in in saying that you know what I really believe is that our job as care providers is to educate people about the symptoms of, of recurrence. You know, uh, uh, for example, uh, with somebody who's bipolar, I will often say you know if if you don't sleep for a night or two. Uh, that's probably normal. If it goes on beyond that, my phone needs to be ringing. You know, we, we, I think that a lot of our role as providers is to teach people how to manage their care themselves in a way and also their families to teach them about what symptoms are early. Uh, another thing I tell patients is uh, if you're a spouse tells you that you look like you're getting depressed again you need to listen to them absolutely because you're not going to see it yourself you know a person who has a mood disorder whether it's uh, bipolar or unipolar or whatever uh, you know the way they feel is the way they believe they are supposed to feel and uh, uh, so uh, by having a 
an ally who is a good observer who will be open about what they're seeing. I always tell them if your you know spouse or or someone that you're close to says you you know you, you look like things are not going so well, you better listen to them because they're probably right. You know. Yeah, I have asked my wife um, after I got better and recovered to make sure she lets me know if she believes that um, I may be going down into a depressive bout. Um, and I know I spoke to a friend of mine fairly recently um, asking a, a friend of mine who does deal with, lives with uh, bipolar disorder. And I asked him if, if I have a sense that he's going into a, depress, into a depression or a mania, could I run that by him or would that if, offend him? And uh, he said, you know, it might offend me a tiny bit, but I would appreciate it actually. And I know it's helpful. So he's he's learning to accept that from people who care about him. Yeah, th- uh, there's a, a uh, scale called the Young uh, Mania Scale. Uh, uh, and uh, it has all the symptoms of bipolar disorder listed. Uh, I think it's really talking about the, the manic side of things, though, mostly. But it has like 11 different symptoms that it talks about. And I will often give that to a patient who has bipolar and to their spouse or uh, a partner and say, you know, you need to sit down with somebody once a month or something and review these symptoms. because, And uh, you need to listen to what your uh, the other observer is saying. They may not be right. But if uh, if they are right, you need to be uh, make some adjustments in your treatment. At least uh, let me know that what's going on. Uh, you know, the, there is also, I think, Al, a, a very strong inclination uh, for people, uh, even uh, particularly maybe when they're young or when they're in their first episode, to stop their medicines much too soon because they think, well, it's gone now. You know, it's it's uh, over, and I don't need these anymore. And there's a of course, uh, particularly for younger people, there's a sense of shame about having to take medicine uh, to feel normal. And then, so if you're feeling normal, why should I bother taking this medication anymore? So a lot of people make that decision to go off the medication uh, too soon, uh, and uh, uh, it uh, creates problems. The, the other thing I do when I'm talking to people about that is to say, you know, there's a lag time but on the between the time that you start the medication and the time you begin to show some recovery from your symptoms but there's also a lag time when you go off the medicine so if you feel like you're feeling pretty good and you go off of it any kind of potential relapse is not going to occur for a while maybe um, uh, weeks to months later after and so people don't recognize it. it's like i stopped the medicine nothing happened i missed it for a few days you know i didn't have money to get, for my copay to pick up the meds or whatever and and nothing changed so you know i'll just stop taking them for a while and see what happens and then and then of course once it begins to uh, come on again it creeps in insidiously and they don't recognize it and then they get way into it before they recognize that they need to do something or somebody tells them that they need to. And, and then, of course, it's harder to, to get people back out of it than it is to interrupt it when it, uh, there's a smaller change in symptoms. Yeah, that is such an important point because I think it's well known. I would imagine most people are aware of the fact that antidepressants take anywhere from four to six weeks to have full effect. Um, but the going off of your meds that's a really good point because people could almost be in this euphoric state, I would imagine, two weeks out saying, yep, great, you know, and, it, and just lose the awareness of of w- watching themselves more more cautiously. Oh, yeah, it happens all the time. And again, I, I see it particularly for people who are in, you know, uh, maybe a first or second episode and, and uh, 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 particularly if they're young, you know, when you're young, you feel like, you're invulnerable and and nothing can touch you and and uh, uh, so there are a lot of things that operate at that point in our lives to um, maybe not follow through with it and manage our care the best way it takes a little maturity that's one of the advantages of getting older you, yeah. you, <laughs> you, you take your medicine when you're supposed to right, right. <laughs> um, so I want to circle back I, I meant to ask this earlier um, you talked about your family history of depression and such how about your own mental health well uh, I uh, Probably was, I, I don't think I was ever, you know, sort of 
clinically depressed to the point where I needed medication, but I certainly was depressed during my second year in medical school. Uh, and uh, I actually made three separate appointments to see somebody at the mental health center at the medical school and didn't show up for any of the appointments. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, you know, Part of it was probably the issues of sexual orientation that I wasn't ready to deal with. I don't know exactly. But um, the second year was a, a killer year for me in terms of, uh, you know, just the academic demands were, were high. Uh, I was lonely. I didn't have anybody in my life. And uh, uh, I kind of was thinking, uh, you know, why am I going through all this misery? Uh, uh, is it ever going to really be worthwhile? And I, I should have uh, seen somebody. And then when I uh, was um, uh, at the point of coming out and deciding to dissolve my marriage, uh, I saw somebody then for a while too. So I, I've certainly had my experience. Uh, and both my, I have two daughters, and both of them have had their time uh, uh, seeing therapist uh, as well. My my older daughter is a psychiatrist too in Seattle. Oh, fantastic. My, yeah, younger one and uh, teaches school and and uh, uh, they're both very insightful uh, people. Well, they have a very insightful father, obviously. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> um, what, so when you you know, I do hear about a lot. I've done some reading around um, med students and doctors with depression and. Some of the challenges I think of, can a doctor share with anybody that they're going through depression? Can they be medicated? Does that impact their medical license or their practice? Um, so I know that can be incredibly challenging in the hours uh, doctors work as residents and, and the studies, like you mentioned, the incredible pressure and loneliness. Um, w what kind of symptoms were you experiencing in that second year of med school? Um, I think, I mean, I wasn't having a lot of the vegetative symptoms like change of appetite and sleep disturbance. I mean, I've always had a certain amount of sleep disturbance, so it was not any significant change. And, of course, when you're a med student, you don't necessarily get a lot of sleep anyhow. So it didn't seem like there was any real change in that. It, it was just uh, a sense of... Um, I guess it wasn't to the degree of despair, but just a sense of, uh, you know, what's it all about? What's it all for? Mm. Uh, that kind of a feeling. Uh, is this what life is all about? Uh, uh, am I uh, sacrificing too much? Those kinds of feelings. I right. Think. Sounds like a bit overwhelming. Yeah, it was at the time for me, for sure. Uh huh. Uh, but, uh, you know, I've uh, fortunately been able uh, since then to really avoid anything like that. I, I've used some, uh, I mean, you know, I use a lot of cognitive behavioral techniques for myself when I'm not feeling good. You know, yeah. I know that this is how I'm feeling, but what are the facts here? What, you know, right. uh, yeah, that kind of thing where I examine uh, those kinds. And those techniques work for me as well as for my patients. As far as, uh, you know, a, a professional taking medications or, uh, you know, I would say that uh, it's probably malpractice not to if you need them, you know. Right, right. Uh, That's a good point. It, it really, uh, you know, I don't think most of the medications are really impair somebody's judgment in any significant way. But certainly if they're uh, people who are depressed or have an anxiety disorder or, or whatever it is, that uh, in itself can uh, create uh, problems that impact uh, your ability to practice in a safe way. Oh, absolutely. That's a really good point. So at any of the times when you were seeing a psychiatrist or a therapist, were you um, in your uh, therapy practice already? I mean, were you working as a psychiatrist at the time? Oh, yeah. I, I Actually, I missed one of the big ones, too. When I, when I was in my residency, uh, I was in my last year of residency. For psychiatry? Uh, yeah. Okay. And uh, I went to see um, my supervisor, uh, and we did case presentations with them. And, and I, I don't remember what we were talking about, but I'm sure it was about my father. And then he asked me about my father, and I started to cry. And, and, and so he said, I think, you know, you really need to deal with this before you leave the residency. So I saw a, uh, a psychiatrist for... Um, several months then, 
uh, he was sort of uh, old-fashioned psychiatrist like me, and and uh, the question of medication never came up. But I, I, I don't think they really would have uh, um, really indicated any. I don't think my symptoms were reached that degree right. of uh, severity. And mostly, uh, if I'm anxious, it's uh, sleep that bothers me, and I recover from that pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So you didn't find uh, any kind of shame at all being a therapist thinking like, I should be able to do this on my own. Why do I need therapy? I have heard of a couple of therapists or people in training, at least, who were going through some serious depression and I think really kind of resisted the, the idea of seeing somebody for support, which, like you mentioned earlier, is only more detrimental. Yeah, I mean, I really uh, am a firm believer that uh, almost all of us who do this work should have our time on the couch uh, uh, talking about things. Because, you know, one of the issues that we talked about in the old days uh, in the Freudian uh, times uh, was about countertransference and how uh, our own life experience, unless we've really figured them out, how they can impact our judgment and recommendations about what we do for patients. But I think, you know, I, I, in fact, when I have students uh, or residents that I've worked with in the past, I always recommend to them, g- go see somebody, get yourself into a treatment, not necessarily because you're experiencing it, uh, any need for that, but just the experience of knowing what it's like to walk into that office and not know what's going to happen and what's going to come out of your head and out of your mouth. You know, that's an important experience, I think. Uh, so... Uh, uh, I would really su- suggest that uh, people in training all spend some time doing that, uh, however bad uh, they uh, think they need it or not. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, feel what it's like, like you said, walking through that door and have that experience. And I would think it could only build the empathy for that person who then becomes the therapist. Yeah, I, th- I think so too, Alan. You know, we all have had life experiences which impact our judgment. I mean, that's that's just the way we uh, operate, and uh, we need to know when we're uh, uh, thrown a curve that might uh, change our opinion and uh, the way that we interpret something that's happened. Right. Uh, Can you? Uh I want to jump a bit ahead and uh, hear more about your book. So your book is called Finally Out, Letting Go of Living Straight, correct? Uh, that's it. And, and people can find that on Amazon if they'd like yeah. to find it, right? That's right, yeah. It, uh, it's, and it's the white cover. There's actually the two editions. The, the, the brown cover is the first edition. So, uh, the, uh, the white cover is the newest. And uh, um, I, uh, well, I came out when I was 40. I was married. Uh, my wife and I had been married 18 years. We had two daughters. Uh, you know, I, it was a time when I thought I should have had it all. Uh, and, you know, it's a long and involved story that I, I talk about in the book. But uh, I uh, ended up uh, falling in love with a man. Uh, and to kind of my shock, I hadn't expected it. I hadn't gone looking for it. And I had not been... Uh, um, uh, seeking out uh, sex with men um, before that happened. Uh, so it, uh, it came as kind of a, a surprise to me. And then uh, as I began to talk to other older men who had come out later, I found that there were many of them who had had similar kinds of experiences. And what I did was kind of a research of the literature to see what had been written about coming out in midlife, and there really wasn't much at all about it. Most of the coming out literature focuses on young uh, adults or, or teenagers uh, and that process. But there really wasn't much for people like me who uh, had started out either believing that they were uh, heterosexual or maybe doubting they were heterosexual but trying to cover it up from themselves and from other people or whatever. But uh, So there seemed to be a real uh, lack of information. So I took a survey of a bunch of people and it kind of supported what I believed in and uh, that's uh, how the book uh, finally out came finally out. <laughs> and, uh, I had uh, started out doing the work without ever thinking I'd write a book, uh, and uh, 
uh, it was a process of examining, you know, what what, is, what was it like in Nebraska in the 50s that might have created some of the strong resistance to the idea of coming out and, and uh, you know, kind of a historical perspective uh, and a cultural perspective, you know, going back to the idea of a biopsychosocial model. I wanted to know, you know, was there something biologically that predisposed me to it? Was it uh, cultural? Uh, was it uh, a uh, developmental experience? like a lot of the old literature used to suggest. And so that's, uh, I came at it uh, from that perspective. Did you get your, any uh, answers around your own questions about yourself? Oh, yeah, I think uh, definitely. Uh, you know, uh, uh, it's hard now. Well, I, I was going to say it's hard now to imagine what it was like, but I mean, I'm, I fear almost that it's slipping back in some ways to the way it was. But it's hard for people who are younger to imagine what it was like in the 50s in the McCarthy era uh, when uh, they were making efforts to purge uh, homosexuals from the government. Uh, and at that time, there were people who were imprisoned for it. And, and, and that was the, that was my youth. I mean, that was when I was uh, 10 years old. And uh, so I know that uh, that whole thing was uh, in the air that I breathed in the prairie of Nebraska, uh, as well as across the country. And so, um, I mean, that was part of it. And, you know, sort of the idea that my mother had, uh, wasn't really excited about my decision to go into psychiatry. I'm sure that had played a big role in my, uh, delaying, uh, that. And I, um, my mother had been through enough pain. I, I know that there was a certain element in my life of not wanting to put her through more pain. So I'm sure that my coming out was partly delayed from that but but really you know uh, what it amounted to was that there was just this flat out denial in the sense of you know a psychological defense not the, the denying in the sense that I knew but I wasn't going to say but just uh, the, the way the mind can protect us from things it doesn't want to see um, I didn't see any of that and I expected I would be married uh, to my wife uh, for the rest of my life and I uh, entered into that uh, marriage with uh, every commitment to do that so it was uh, quite a shock uh, to me when it when it happened um but so many other people have gone through uh similar kinds of things and uh, recognized it uh, at a later time in their life for a variety of reasons. i'm one man they, uh, that i interviewed in in the uh, uh for the book was 91 when he came out and uh wow. His wife, uh, he, he'd been married to his wife for over 50 years. Uh, and, I mean, that he's an outlier for sure, um, but not as much as you might think. Uh, lots of older people uh, have uh, come out at um, 50s, 60s, uh, 70s as well. Um, and do you think that would be the, is that essentially the target audience of the book? Um, older gay men well, who have come out or... Uh, I, I wrote it from the perspective of not only just those men, but also uh, families uh, uh -huh. who might want to get some understanding uh, for therapists, uh, clergy. It's, I wrote it uh, trying to avoid all the psychobabble so it was accessible to um, somebody who was not a clinical person, but also with enough clinical information that it wasn't uh, dumbed down in any way. Uh, 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 so, uh, but the, uh, I would like to see it used some in uh, like uh, college classes for uh, educators and, and uh, uh, therapists or uh, courses on sexuality, that sort of thing. Um, so uh, it's, it's a different perspective. I mean, Probably the the bit, biggest criticism that I experienced, uh, and, and it hasn't been much, frankly, but uh, would be from uh, younger people who say, "Oh, you couldn't have not known you were gay. You had to know. You were just uh, hiding it from your wife. You were you know, using uh, your marriage as a shield to protect you." And you know, it wasn't that way at all. And uh, but. 
you know, there are a lot of people. And in fact, I've been married to my husband now for 30 years. And, and he says, I knew when I was four. He's <laughs> <Right, laughs> right. like, okay, I, I, I imagine that that's possible. That was certainly, but I think, you know, what it, what it talks to is that, you know, uh, gay men and straight men, bisexual, all of us uh, are individuals. You know, uh, we live our life, of course, in different ways, and all these forces come together uh, uh, that help us uh, to choose the way that we're going to live. And and for me, the, it just didn't work out that I, I knew about it and was prepared to deal with it any sooner than that. And uh, but I do believe that there are people who know when they're very young. But I, you know, I never knew anyone who was openly gay uh, until I was in my residency when I was in my 30s. I mean, that's how different the world is now. Right. That's Yeah. Uh, and I mean, there were people that I suspected of it, but nobody talked openly. And of course, when I was in the military, even people that we, I, part of my job was processing men out of the military who were gay. Right. Uh, wow. You know, uh, and uh, uh so uh, it it is a lot different, and I guess I'm very fearful now with some of the things that are going on politically that uh, it looks like you know, uh, we could slip back into that very easily. You know, it's, it's a little frightening to me. Yeah, I think it's uh, fair to say it's a frightening time for many of us, right? Oh yeah, um, yeah. different, yeah. you know. Yeah, different races, different religions. Oh yeah, if yeah. you are different now. Yeah, there are many challenges ahead. Unfortunately, it looks like. I think so too. I I hope that we'll get through this uh, at some point. But it, yeah, I mean anybody at this point, and and you know, it, most of us are different. You know? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I hope you didn't take my comment as downplaying what it means to be a gay man, because I certainly agree that that things are getting more challenging. For no, I didn't. I didn't, well. I didn't. I didn't take that uh, at okay, all. Good, uh, good. <laughs> uh, no, because I absolutely agree that you know it, it's whether you're poor, you're a person of color, or whatever your difference is. But like I said, you know, the majority of people that uh, are not. Uh, old white men. <laughs> you know, right, that's not right. that's, that's not the majority of our country anymore. Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, so I, anyhow, we, that could be a chat for another time, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. A whole new podcast. <laughs> so, um, you know, you you had mentioned that you saw a therapist when you were breaking up with your wife, I believe. Right. Uh -huh. And then was your mental health impacted? Not like were there two different fronts, one for actually leaving this marriage and you had two kids as well as coming out as a gay white man? Uh, you know, uh, I didn't really spend a lot of time talking about my, uh, my sexual orientation because I think, you know, when I broke through that barrier in my head, it was pretty obvious to me, uh, that I was gay at that point. You know, I, I didn't really have a lot of struggle with accepting it. I mean, it really hit me in the face and I said, oh yeah, now a lot of life uh, makes sense to me that didn't make sense before. So uh, mostly it was related to the idea that, uh, you know, I, I married my wife with a, uh, an honorable commitment and I, uh, because I'd lived without a father myself, I had a, uh, my highest priority was raising uh, my kids and being a good father. And so I felt uh, that I was betraying a lot of the ideals that I had for myself. Uh, and that held me in the marriage, uh, too, because I, I mean, I really did not want to, to, uh, uh, abandon my kids as I felt like I had been abandoned by my father, uh, when he died. And, right. and so I, I, I didn't want them to have to go through any of that pain. But then, you know, what happened of course was, uh, that, uh, I felt like, uh, my same sex attractions were not going to be able to be contained, uh, and that at some point I was going to behave in such a way that it would bring shame to the family, which would have been, in my mind been worse. Now, whether it had worked out that way, I don't know, but that was the reasoning I went through at the time. Right. And, uh, are you in pretty close communications with your wife and your kids? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's really, uh, worked out in my mind 
the best it could under the circumstances. Uh, actually, my husband and my wife are good friends. Okay, uh, uh, we we do holiday and birthday events and stuff like that together when we can. And and um, my grandkids kind of see Doug as a bonus grandpa because he's been in their lives since they were born. You know, it's right, long. right. And uh, you know, th- probably one of the most uh, the things that can bring tears to my eyes is to uh, see how easily my sons-in-law have accepted me. You know, my daughters were stuck with me. They didn't have any choice. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but my sons-in-law had a choice about entering our family. Uh, and they uh, accept me and and, and Doug uh, without any problems. So uh, uh, I have enormous love and respect for them for giving that gift to me. Oh, that's fantastic. So before we wrap up here, I'm wondering um, what types of advice you might give to, to a man who's struggling out there, be it a gay man who was in a similar situation to yourself um, or just somebody struggling with their mental health right now. Well, I think um, what we were talking about before in terms of hope, uh, one of my favorite sayings, Al, is that uh, uh, – uh, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. And each of us goes through life experiencing painful events. Um, but when we uh, draw those out and don't deal with them in any way and then we begin to suffer because of it, that's an option we have. You know, it's like somebody who goes with an untreated uh, depressive disorder, they're suffering needlessly. You know, and uh, so I think that's one message that I would have is that, you know, you can't change the fact that at times life is going to be disappointing. Um, But what we can choose is how we deal with it. And sometimes it takes a long time and sometimes it's hard to find somebody who can help you find the answers. But the answers are there and they'll come. Right. So it sounds like um, a piece of that is just kind of admitting that you have some challenges to work at. Yes, yes. Right. And we, Coming we to all terms have, with it. We all have them from time to time uh, and just accepting that that's uh, part of life. You know, I, uh, I, when I talk to people uh, who uh, have lost someone, I said, you know, it wouldn't hurt uh, to lose someone if you didn't love them so much. So, I mean, we have a choice. We can we cannot love people and then we don't get hurt by losing. Them. Right, right. You know, right. And, and that's not how I want to uh, uh, live my life, you know. So, I mean, I think if, if we're going to give ourselves to another person, love another person, we're going to have to deal with, uh, with the reality that at some point most relationships are going to end uh, one way or another. Uh, and uh, uh, it, it's uh, the risk we accept uh, when we uh, uh, love. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to thank you for your time, Dr. Lauren Olson. This has been awesome. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. I think you sound like an incredibly passionate, caring doctor who's concerned about you know, the whole patient and all of the care. And I think uh, people who, who got to work with you um, were pretty lucky folks. Well, thank you. I appreciate your comments. All right. Well, thank you again for your time, Dr. Olson, and uh, stay healthy. I will. Okay. <laughs> I'm working on it. All right. <laughs> I want to I get old gracefully. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Thanks again. Yeah. Good night, Al. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. Please know that if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text to 741741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you're a man who has experienced depression and would like to be interviewed for the show, please reach out to me on Twitter at AlLevin18. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files. <laughs>